Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. I've got David with me, our usual suspect, <laughs> political strategist and philosophy nerd. David, how are you today? Howdy, I'm doing great. Good. And Henri Pellerin, libertyportal.com, founder and editor, back with us. How are you, Henri? I am also great. Getting ready to get married in a couple of weeks and, you know, life is good. Congratulations, yeah. buddy. I'm Thank excited you. for you. Thank you. Well, let's get into a couple of things. We're going to we're gonna cruise through a couple of quick corrections that, uh, from last week, but we've got a great show after that. We're going to talk about some UFO hysteria, the underreported chemical spill in Ohio, which is a crazy thing being compared uh, to Chernobyl. We've got some new inflation data. Uh, we'll break down what it means, what it doesn't mean, and why... Perhaps it is not a complete picture of the economic condition in the country. But for now, David, we're going to turn to our talk about the Nord Stream pipeline last episode. Um, you mentioned that there was a pipeline that was opened up recently between Denmark and Germany. That was actually between Poland and Norway, was it not? Correct. Yeah, I, I goofed that up. I'm confused my Baltic countries. My bad. Well, there aren't very many of them. I expect better of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geography is my strong suit. Um, and, and additionally to that, we talked about some charges being placed on the pipeline prior to the invasion. That was actually not prior to the invasion, but the planning was prior. Yeah, I, I goofed up there. I, I said planted when I meant was the planning started before nine months before the when, you know, at the time of June when the when the whole uh, Baltrops event happened. So uh, just to clarify. Baltrops was a NATO exercise in the Baltics, uh, specifically between a bunch of countries where they kind of like do this war gaming planning thing and they maneuver their ships and they're saying, this is how we, you know, if Russia attacked or whatever. So the, um, yeah, it was during that exercise that they planted the charges. The planning for that started well before the invasion of, U of, of Ukraine by Russia. That was the point I was trying to make. That's the point that the article makes, but I just goofed up the words. And if you'd like to check that out for yourself, um, Check out Cy Hirsch's Substack. Um, great resource, and that, that article is fascinating. Um, and then lastly, your third strike, uh, the war in Syria. You mentioned it was a seven-sided seven war. It isn't really a correction as much as it is a clarification. Do you want to like add some context to that? Yeah, there are there really two parts of that that I wanted to clarify because I think it's I think it's really important to the overall picture of what we were talking about when it came to the, the prime minister of Israel talking about his attempts to try to bring peace in the Ukrainian situation. It was that, uh, one, it's way more than seven sides, uh, or at least there are way more belligerents in the war than seven. Uh, and the sides isn't as clear as pro-Assad, anti-Assad. And that's often how it's covered, but it's actually way more complicated than that, especially once you include Israel. You look up Operation Chess. Operation Chess is a, is a work, is, is, a, is a, what's the word I'm looking for? Is a program? Program? War game? Operation. Yeah. No, it's an actual thing. It's not a game, but a uh, war, a war strategy uh, operation. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, by Israel to to use the Syrian war, at least to attack Iran in a proxy war. So Israel and Iran are in this proxy war. Israel is funding militia groups. They said is Hezbollah. It, 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 they are, but they aren't. It's, it's, it's kind of confusing. But Iran is backing a, a group 
we'll call him Hezbollah, while uh, Israel's attacking that group. Now, Hezbollah is there trying to overthrow the country of Iran or of Syria. Gosh, <laughs> Syria <laughs> is being is right now being defended by Russia. So what Israel doesn't want to do is when it's attacking Hezbollah to accidentally hit Russian troops. That's why it is so important for the prime minister of Israel to, of course, early on approach Putin and say, hey, we got to we got to figure this out. And while we're out here, you know, coordinating and, and working together in, in Syria, working against each other in this weird way, uh, we're going we need to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And he tried to bring everyone to the table and basically the U.S. said, take a hike. Crazy. I can't even imagine like how any combatant would know if they were targeting the right group if there's more than seven sides to a conflict like that just sounds like chaos yeah because you got the kurds you have turkey israel america russia uh syria iran uh, of course you have the syrian back forces and then you have uh, uh uh the syrian rebels which are syrians and people from syria fighting against assad it gets very very complicated and Ooh. when we mentioned that um I think Kyle or, or I mentioned that there was a point there where we actually gave weapons to Al-Qaeda in that situation. That was by the group Al-Nusra Front. And that, that the, the problem there is, once again, is it isn't clear about, because this is all black ops under the ground stuff that, you know, you know it unintentionally became public, um, that that accidentally happened. If it was like an ends justify the means situation or or if we were like, Oh, hey, well, we're just happy, you know, you're fighting the same guy we are, Al Nusra, therefore we'll give you some weapons, right? And then they actually, they, they turned out to be Al Qaeda. We don't know. That said, it's what happened. And we know that for certain. Uh, is and, that, is that Timber Sycamore? Yes, that's okay. Timber Sycamore. That's, that's that program to run guns and ammunition to the right rebel groups, the supposedly friendly, uh, pro democratic Western uh, rebel groups in Syria. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's move on to the news for the show here. Um, got a lot of interesting stuff. Let's start with let's start with UFOs. Uh, so we had the Chinese spy balloon in quotes pass over the United States uh, a week, a little over a week ago, and since then. Since it was shot down over the Atlantic, we've had like four or so other unexplained aerial phenomena occur. One of them was over northern Montana. It was just a, apparently a radar anomaly that scrambled fighters. There was something shot down over northern Alaska. There was another thing shot down over Lake Huron. Lots of activity, lots of press coverage. Um, why are we seeing all of this stuff happening now what are your what's your take on it Henri? well i mean i think a lot of people have pointed out that it just feels like a giant distraction um not really sure exactly what we're being diverted away from it could be this Nord Stream pipeline story could be this environmental disaster in ohio um but it's definitely you know people love to talk about something like aliens versus you know rather than talking about 
potential of World War III. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would, you know, I think, David, you're probably more in tune with a lot of this stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a, a lot of weather balloons for the most part um, and, you know, being hyped up as potentially aliens. If, you know, if one thing I will say, if, if aliens are coming to visit us, you know, they're going to be capitalists. <laughs> uh, because no socialist could could figure out interstellar travel, um, so uh, yeah, that's that's my uh, well thought out take on the matter. That is going to make a great clip. I cannot wait, <laughs> David. What what are your thoughts? What why would the Biden administration kind of be putting out a lot of this stuff that it is right now? Yeah, so I think the well, what happened was the China balloon happened. Uh, it went from suspected spy balloon to balloon uh, spy balloon really quickly. Uh, there are a lot of people connecting the dots on hypotheticals about what are potential explanations for it. And then it becomes, that's the explanation. Uh, it's a very subtle movement that happens, I think, spontaneously. No one's like planning it. It's not a central, it's not like someone person up front, you know, uh, with a giant triangle head, like planning out what the media says. The media is a marketplace following the signals of the marketplace. What gets clicks and what gets views. We're participating in that right now. The trick is, is that we are really trying careful to try to say, this is what we think is happening. And, and you can follow us if you like us. If you don't like it, don't follow us. <laughs> you know, we're not going to lie to you here. I mean, on top of that, we're amateurs, right? We're over here saying this is not, this is not, we're not, if we don't get a certain amount of clicks, we're not going to not get paid, right? Our life is orientated. Otherwise. We're already not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, what I see is an, a perverse incentive to hype up paranoia, that is resulting in uh, a, a very strong signal to two actors. One, Xi Jinping of China is obviously saying, this is a giant freak out on the American public. This demonstrates their weakness and insecurity and their inability to deal with the uncertainty that's reality, right? They don't, we don't know what it is, right? So people can't handle that uncertainty, so they just leap to the conclusion that gives them a singular explanation that makes them, you know, that fits their narrative, right? If you're a Republican, the populist Republicans lost their mind on this. They're saying, you know, hey, we need to we need to watch out for World War III in Ukraine. But this this balloon, if you didn't blow it up in two seconds after we identified it, it means a complete failure of the U.S. security. <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. It could be. It could still just be just a, a weather balloon. You know, we don't know. Uh, additionally, that it, you know, all the paranoia about the other things that could happen. Well, it could have had chemicals on it, or it could have been an EMP attack, or it could have all turns into it was dangerous. While all this speculation, well, it could have been, really turned out, maybe turned out to be a giant nothing burger. We will never hear the story about how it turned into a giant nothing burger, or at least when it comes out, reason will publish it, no one will look at it because they're targeted by the FBI as a disreputable magazine or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, the other actor in that is Joe Biden, who his administration got called out by all the Republicans of looking weak. Uh, obviously, this was covered in such a way that kind of set up that dynamic in a lot of ways. Not as bad as it would have been if it was another administration, but definitely, you know, made him look bad for some reason. Hmm. And Republicans set up that dynamic so that when these other unidentified objects happened, of course, there was an immediate response that everyone overreacted and only fed the flames of paranoia and insecurity. And what we're not, what we're kind of missing is, is what would a secure American administration security state look like? It would probably look like Dwight D. Eisenhower. And his Open Skies work. Are you guys familiar with that? Nope. So Open Skies was a program, uh, an agreement between the United States and the USSR during the Cold War 
to allow them to fly over American airspace and take pictures of us. Why would they do that? Well, in order to ensure transparency and confidence building so that they could get to a place where they could get nuclear arms reduction treaties so that it would prevent them from accidentally pressing the, the kill the world button, which is what the, our nuclear arsenal would do. Uh, trending on Instagram right now, so go check out that video. <laughs> uh, but the but that 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 hair trigger is so f- dangerous. Even Dwight D. Eisenhower was like, "You can you, here are our cards. Let's build some confidence together. Let's let's uh, we hate each other, but you know here are our cards. So you, we don't actually press the button. You don't actually press the button, and we have all out nuclear war. We almost got to that place several times." There's great histories written about all the times where we almost went to nuclear war with Russia during the Cold War. It didn't happen because of the confidence we built with things like open skies. Now, I'm not saying we, we necessarily need to do another one. I'm not saying I'm making, not making any ought claims. I'm just saying is. I'm just saying this is how the world is. Confidence looks like that. It doesn't look like everyone freak out because there's something that we don't know about. There's a, there's a maturity in being comfortable with uncertainty. And a lot of people are really not mature in this way that they are able to say, I don't know what it is. It could be bad. It could be neutral. Let's just wait until we find out what's happened, you know? Totally. Well, and I mean, I think uh, a lot of people, like you said, Henri, were were maybe hoping it was going to be aliens because aliens are really interesting. It's such a compelling story. The memes would be great. The the memes. I mean, (laughs) can you imagine? I bet you aliens make great memes too, right? I mean, advanced civilization interstellar travel they've got to have interstellar memes too oh yeah they've come to to transact in memes <laughs> that's uh. their currency <laughs> the real magic of the universe how pissed would you be if they uh were transacting in cryptocurrency oh man i, I don't know i'd be like that would that would surprise me a lot <laughs> I, I mean they're certainly not gonna be you know coming here with a you know a wallet full of bitcoin you know they come with sacks of gold coins it would make more sense that they would come looking for resources. I think it would be uh, Element X. Is that, is that uh, the one? Unobtainium. I feel like in an interstellar paradigm, gold is less valuable because it's on all these asteroids, right? Like they could, it, gold might be like uh, copper, nickel, or, or some other really common element is on Earth, right? I mean, it, it, it may be, I don't know. Like we're talking about, you know, something completely hypothetical, but just because it's in an asteroid doesn't mean it's easy to, to mine. I mean, like how much would it cost to mine an asteroid? Like think of, think about that. You got to ask the aliens. I don't know. Yeah. If you got interstellar, tra- interstellar travel, mining an asteroid's got to be pretty easy. Right. Yeah. My yeah. thought. But yeah. that said, I, 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 I there, I'm interesting thought experiment. Uh, the rarity of gold is a really interesting topic that we should talk about sometime and why it was a preferred currency for such a long time. Uh, of course, it cycles in with what we're going to talk about when we talk about inflation. But uh, Jordan Peterson has a really interesting um, um, interview with a guy who's bring a lot of new ideas to that to that landscape. Awesome. I look forward to hearing more about that. In the meantime, Edward Snowden tweets, it's not aliens. I wish it were aliens, but it's not aliens. It's just the old engineered panic, an attractive nuisance ensuring NATSEC or uh, national security Reporters get assigned to investigate balloon bullshit rather than budgets or bombings a la Nord Stream. Until next time, as he gallops off into the distance like that meme. Um, Speaking of things that uh, people aren't reporting on while we're concerned about UFOs and spy balloons, there's been this epic chemical spill in Ohio. It's getting more and more coverage by the day, which is encouraging because it has gone very underreported in the mainstream media until now. 
I would point people to Timcast for pretty great comprehensive coverage. Uh, those guys are downwind of uh, the place where this spill occurred in East Palestine, Ohio. So they're definitely squarely involved and definitely going to be impacted. So they're, they're covering it very thoroughly, but generally speaking, uh, top level view is a train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, appears to be a wheel bearing failure that was detected, caused the train engineers to use the emergency brakes, which caused the wheel bearing to fail. The train goes off the track, spilling probably tens of thousands, if not more gallons of hazardous chemicals, including vinyl chloride, because it's a highly flammable gas. Um, actually, I don't actually even know if it's a gas or if it's a liquid form in a, in a tanker, but because it's very highly flammable, they were concerned that the heat from the crash and the flames were going to cause these tankers to explode, sending shrapnel for miles. So they actually chose to control burn, to, to release and, and burn this vinyl chloride, resulting in this amazing mushroom cloud of terror covering the the skies of, of the greater East Palestine, Ohio area, which is not far from Pittsburgh, not far upwind from Washington, D.C., you know, other very populous areas. And so, you know, where we find ourselves with the situation is lots of people in this area reporting pets dying, farm animals dying, dead fish and frogs and animals in rivers. I mean, really catastrophic stuff that's being compared to you know, the likes of, of Chernobyl, um, which is pretty crazy. So Henri, I guess I would like to turn to you. What are your, what are your thoughts on what's going on here? And, uh, yeah, what do you, what do you make of the situation? Well, I mean, I think the, the lack of coverage is, is one of the more interesting elements of the story. Um, and as well as, you know, you're looking for the dogs that aren't barking. I mean, where, where are all the uh, environmental advocates on this story? They're completely silent. And, and and I don't really know what's going on down there. I mean, I've been listening to Tim Cast a little bit. Um, you know, it's 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 a huge environmental disaster to say the least. Um, and we're not hearing anything about it. If this had happened under you know the previous administration, it would be wall to wall coverage. You'd be, this is Trump's America, and it, you know you you would never hear the end of it. I think also. If this had happened in the absence of all the environmental regulations that we have, you know, it would be considered, oh, this is the failure of capitalism, you know, this, that, and the other. You know, meanwhile, you know, our, uh, like, Pete, Pete Buttigieg is out there not talking about the story for over 10, 10 days. He finally mentioned it a couple of days ago. Uh, transportation secretary, for those that don't know. Right. Yeah, and and while all this is going on, you know, he's more concerned about, you know, what kind of diversity is, is prevalent and on construction crews and things like that. It, you know, their, their interests are just not there for some reason. Um, I, I guess, you know, maybe there's a lack of coverage because it, it would make the current administration look bad. Um, that, that seems sort of plausible. Um, you know, maybe there's some sort of, um, culpability in it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what, yeah, what comes out. I mean, it's kind of a fun part about doing a weekly news show is we do get an opportunity to watch things unfold a little bit um, before, you know, getting to weigh in. But this one is 
getting so little coverage that we really don't know a lot. I mean, David, what are your what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, first we were kind of thinking like this is one of the things that isn't getting enough attention. And then within the last twenty four hours, forty eight hours has become like a mainstream story. You'll see it on Fox News, MSNBC, they're all talking about it too now. And I think that's actually I mean, it's a it's a terrible disaster. And I don't want to downplay that at all. But at least a component of that is when access to information increases, there is a potential, isn't always taken advantage of, but there's a potential for news stories like this to bubble up and force the mainstream press to educate the public about. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Uh, it's a critical role that citizen journalists play. It's a critical role that uh, independent media plays. And, you know, what, I, I, in a sense that it's a win for the internet uh, to the fact that we, it has become this big of a story. The cover-up-ish moment of it, where in the very beginning, it seemed like officials weren't responding. And uh, the EPA, of course, is saying, this is relatively safe. And then we get all this anecdotal stories of animals dying and people feeling sick and all this kind of stuff in the areas. Those voices are amplified because we have the internet. We have this opportunity to signal uh, from the bottom up far better than we used to. A collateral consequence of that is the declining faith in institutions. At every step of the way, our, our faith in institutions has gone down. If you are our age, and you saw the intelligence apparatus lie to us about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was a lie. Why would you trust them now, right? Uh, going back to the balloon story, for example, China's saying to us that you're floating balloons over us. And of course, the State Department says, no, we're not. And, <laughs> and like, whom I, so as me, as someone who's just trying to observe the facts and like look at all the times that the intelligence state says, no, Herschel, we didn't, we didn't do that. What are you talking about, you silly goose? Of course, I'm going to be skeptical of that. And I'm more likely to be like, well, maybe the U.S. intelligence is floating balloons over China. I don't know. Yeah. I'm open to that idea. And I'm definitely not going to just believe them just because they happen to be my government. That is to be a tool uh, to, to make myself a slave of their intentions, right? To make myself into their servant. And I refuse to do that. That's Absolutely. not how free people should act. And so, so, so I'm bringing it back to this. The... The lack of faith in the EPA when they say it's safe, we're going to burn it off, or the best bet is to burn it off, a lot of people are going to second guess it now. Because unlike in the 1950s, the access to information is so much greater. There's so much more capacity for us to hold them accountable. The, the, you know, the collateral consequences is that people are just skeptical of our institutions now. That, to me, is overall a good thing. Absolutely. Now, that does mean we need to build more faithful institutions, right? Institutions are really critical to the human endeavor. We just need more voluntary institutions and less ones of force and centralization that cannot respond to these sorts of things because a centralized force responding is always weaker than a decentralized force. Now, that's hard for people who aren't familiar with our worldview to understand. But from our point of view, when individuals on the ground see a problem and they collaborate with people in a network, a voluntary network, there's much more responsiveness because people are taking individual and collective responsibility together versus forced association, in which case you are just delegating that to the EPA, not caring about what happens, right? Because that's just the EPA's fault. Me in Montana, I don't care, you know, because that's the EPA's job. While in, if there was no EPA, there would be much greater collective response and action, we believe, because people would feel a mutual responsibility to help people in need. But right now, the government tax is a third of my income. And therefore, why would I? Because I already gave them a third of my income. Yeah, they, they ought to be able to afford to do it, right? Right. And I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't, I don't I actually get taxed that much, but. Well, that's all right. It's close to that. Close enough. <laughs> well, so speaking of like, you know, preventing this, because, you know, we were talking earlier, the, um, the railroads are highly regulated. 
how do we look at preventing this outside of the context of, well, we just need more regulation? Hmm. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So, and if you want to talk about environmental well, I just, law? Uh, no, I don't oh. want to talk about environmental <laughs> law, but I'll, I'll give you the space to do it. But uh, I just... Have you guys seen the the stat about just how many uh, train derailments there are on a on an annual basis? It's like it's over a thousand. It's like seventeen hundred a year. A year. Whoa. Yeah. Apparently that's true. Right. Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, I guess we should note that in addition to this one in Ohio, since then there's been another train derailment in Houston. It looks like that was a collision with an eighteen wheeler. There's another train derailment right. in, Sa- in um, South Carolina, and and actually a different story, but similarly a a semi-truck carrying nitric acid tipped over on I-10 and outside of Tucson, Arizona and started leaking chemicals everywhere. So again, I think, you know, it does demonstrate this ability for humans to start recognizing patterns. And yeah. now that we're thinking about it, we see it everywhere. But I mean, I would never expect. No, I, that, that, was, that was shocking. Maybe, and maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm reporting f- uh, fake news, but we'll, we'll fact check you. Yeah, and, no, it, it's like that. I mean, yeah. I guess if you compare it to, um, like car, car traffic, you know, accidents, probably way more of those, way more things are moved that Mm. way. Right. Um, the sheer quantity of our needs to move goods and services are going to require, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of error. Right. We want to avoid is like an anti-human, anti-industry, anti, you know, um, uh, bias there because chemicals are needed in order to make the things that make modern civilization work. Right. Um, if only we could have like, you know, something like a pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting component of this that is not being talked about, which I do think is interesting. So like if you don't build pipelines, you, which, which they do leak, but they, but the environmental record of pipelines is actually relatively much better than trains and, and, uh, uh tanker trucks, uh, because of phenomena, like what we're talking about. Uh, the leakage is far less frequent. Uh, it's easy, it's detectable, it's fixable. And the, there's, there's plenty of environmental types on the right who are pointing out like, no, actually pipelines are the best way to handle these. Now you can't pipeline everything, right? I'm sure PVC fluid is not something we could pipeline around. That said, what we want to do is want to say is like, okay, how, how do we create systems of accountability so that the people who move this have the maximal responsibility to ensure that environmental degradation doesn't happen? The problem is, is since the industrial era, there's been a bunch of court cases that have established that in the interest of industrialization, the people who move goods and services around aren't responsible for the potential negative consequences of that. So like the train operator in well, this case. Okay. So I'm referring to, and I, I, I wish I would have done the research on this because I, I thought of this angle beforehand, but I didn't have the time. Uh, there's a court case from the 1800s that basically says when a train goes by a field and it blows coal onto the, uh, like coal ash onto the field and kills crops, uh, the traditional common law approach to that would be like, well, they go and they do a civil suit to the uh, the train company and say, hey, you're you're blowing ash onto my field to give me compensation, and that would be be settled in court with a with a judgment. That trajectory, that common law trajectory that we were on for a thousand years before the uh, industrial revolution, got changed when a judge pretty much said. Actually, because industrialization is so important and because the state thinks it's so important, we're not going to compensate you. And that mm-hmm. turned into uh, in common areas, right? So, prop, you know, common things like rivers, uh, roads, stuff like that, railroads being one of them. Uh, the state now actually controls that. It's going to control that administratively. That was, in the, that was when Richard Nixon created the EPA. The next step was actually in private land, the EPA controls everything too. 
hmm. uh, environmentally. And but now we now everyone lives with this idea that the enforcement of of what is essentially a property right is actually the act of regulation of private industry for the environment. That's how that got flipped on its head, is, is, is a very gradual change in our mental model about how to think about environmental impact. So what's the mechanism for kind of turning that back the other direction towards we, property rights? All, all we have to do is just change the law, right? So that, and, and I'm not, not what I'm not claiming here, and, and maybe because I had to issue a correction today and being overly cautious, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I'm not claiming here is that, uh, is that, that that's the current case law, right? What I'm trying to claim is that Oftentimes what we have is a trade-off between negotiating things through private civil suit and active regulation. So after this, I guarantee you there's going to be a bunch of claims for more regulation on railroads. Of course. That probably won't produce better outcomes. But by our point of view, what would produce better outcomes would be greater liability to the private providers of these services for impact. Now that has to be coupled with greater flexibility to make decisions on their own without pre-approved government approval. Does that make sense? Of course. So there's this trade-off between the bottom-up way of accountability, which is the common law system and civil suit, right, where you impact my property, that's a civil suit, versus active regulation by a bunch of professional big think tank, not think tank, uh, bureaucrats uh, who are going to say, no, railroads, this is what you will do in order to reduce environmental impact. Does that make sense? Totally. I. I have yeah. a question and sort of a statement on this because, you know, you see, you see organizations like the FDA are predominantly made up of ex-pharma executives regulating their old buddies, right? Or the pipeline goes the other way where, you know, you're a regulator at the FDA and then when you retire from that position, you know, if you are good to your, uh, your pharma companies, you will get a, a well-paying position in one. Is, does that same thing exist within you know, the railroad industry. And I, I don't necessarily expect you to know that offhand, but I'm curious if that same thing exists because in that case, it, it, the argument would really be, well, the regulators aren't going to do the maximal job, the optimal job of regulating the railroads if they know that they're going to go try to get a, a high paying job at BNSF or something like that after this. It would be better if the market held them to higher standard of liability for their own activities rather than putting it on the government, on in, these individuals who have perverse incentives within that system. Right. That, what, what policy wants call that is uh, regulatory yeah. capture. Sure. Right. And that idea is that there, in, in the civil suit, there's an adversarial nature to it, right? I'm trying to sue you for impacting my property, while Henri judges our case as a neutral bystander to then judge to find justice. Mm -hmm. While regulatory, well, the regulation regime uh, approach, the progressive era approach to this was put the smartest people in a room. They'll design the right things so we can plan industry ahead of time so bad things don't happen. The problem with that is it assumes a pretense of knowledge that they do not have and cannot have by the very nature of the of the um, of human knowledge. Additionally to that, you know who knows what the actual example was, and I'm sure there are going to be a think think pieces about the very mechanics of how this particular part broke down, who was responsible for it, what regulations were exist and all that kind of stuff. And, and there might be, there might be reasonable places there actually, you know, uh, to get all libertarian about it, you know, the, one of the roles of the legislature in Hayek's worldview was that they should embody general common law discovered principles into a, into a law that's knowable beforehand. Right. But because it, because it reduces transaction costs, that's really complicated. I shouldn't, yeah, that's going to get yeah. deep. Yeah. We'll come <laughs> but, back to that. Yeah. But the idea is that, um, there, are, there might be some cases for that, but what we want is the discovery mechanism first, where we can find new technologies and incentivize the investment in railroads 
that would minimize these sorts of impacts because the people who would make those investments are the people who would pay if there's a problem. Well, right now, I, I, I don't know who's going to pay for this, right? Yeah, right. Is it, it's probably going to be the American taxpayer. Yeah. Well, you know, before we move on from this topic, I think uh, a lot of what you're saying is reminding me of uh, Coast Theorem. Have you guys, are you guys familiar with Coast Theorem? Why don't you describe it for folks that are listening? Yeah. So, you know, Coast Theorem named after Ronald Coase. Um, he was a, a contemporary of Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and all these uh, Chicago school economists who uh, all won Nobel Prizes. Um, Ronald Coase won his in, in the early 90s. But basically, Coase Theorem um, goes like this. If uh, property rights are easy to define and easy to enforce, then as transaction costs go down, um, external, negative externalities go to zero. So in, in layman's terms, that means things like environmental catastrophes like, would just cease to exist. And, and it might sound you know, fantastical, but... Um, this, this is actually a Nobel Prize winning economic theory. And, you know, it's um, the, the classic example of explaining Coase theorem is, you know, imagine you have a um, you have a factory situated next to a river and then downstream from the river, you have uh, some people that that own property, um, you know, along the riverbank. If the factory is polluting into the river and the river is unowned, then it's hard to enforce whatever damages incur because there's there's no nobody to to speak for the river right if if the river is you know quote unquote publicly owned um, then it's a it's a convoluted system of property rights and so it's it's again it's hard to enforce you know who's who's polluting the river but um, if uh, you know that if that pollution goes down the river and winds up on the somebody's you know uh, property downstream, that property owner has an easy uh, path to sue the the factory, right? So, um, you know the the outcome is you just you just need to have well informed, well and uh, well defined, easily enforceable property rights. Those are the things that we can control. Um, if you let the market do its job over time, it'll bring transaction costs down, and and this is this is how you get the best environmental outcomes. But, you know, no environmentalist talks about Coase theorem. Well, can I just ask a clarifying question? When you say transaction costs, are you referring to like the cost, you know, of uh, what, what is that exactly in that example, the factory and the property owners? Well, I mean, you'd have to hire a lawyer or okay, so know, that's legal fees. Right. And, I mean, you have to, you have to somehow uh, transact to both, you know, go after them and to enforce the property, right? Gotcha. Um, but in a in a free market, you know, your your cell phone used to, you know, cost a lot more and it used to be really crappy. And now, even though the technology is a lot better, the cost isn't all that much more. Um, so you you have, you know, transaction costs go down if you if you let the market do its thing. Gotcha. Um, you know, so so really, you know, this is why you have better environmental outcomes. And if you looked at, you know, the world uh, economic freedom index. You're going to have far better environmental outcomes in the countries on the top of the list than you are on the countries on the bottom of the list, um, right? So, the all these you know big government uh, environmental activists, it, it, it's it's a great talking point for selling yourself as a politician. I'm going to save the environment, right? But they are 
they are doing the exact opposite. Yeah, it's not a great talking point to say. I'm gonna go hands off and let the market handle it. Right? That right. sounds like well, you know, deflecting you know, and, and, responsibility. And uh, environmentalists will will uh, will point to um, this episode of the Cuyahoga River fires. Uh, this uh, I believe is in New York. Cuyahoga River um, was catching on fire like in the 1950s due to pollution. Due to pollution. Due to environment uh, industrial pollution. And they'll say, look. That's that's the, the the outcome of capitalism, but I mean the the problem was not so much that you have factories causing pollution. The problem was you have a publicly owned river that it's difficult to enforce property rights on. So it's it's uh it's one of the most important um, uh, economic theories you can you can know, and it, it frankly gets uh, doesn't get the attention it deserves in. Uh, especially in in libertarian circles, you know, we we like to talk a lot about our favorite Austrian economists. Um, people like to talk about Milton Friedman, who was was great, you know, speaking and and um, communicating his ideas. But a lot of his, you know, he he won his Nobel Prize for uh, for his monetary theory, which is essentially just like a, you know, it's it's sort of the uh, more tamed down version of Keynesianism. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, 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 there's also the environmental Kersnets curve. Uh, Kersnets? That's the idea that the richer a country gets, the the more they care about the environment. And then they'll start to actually care about the environment and, and implement processes to care about it. So one of the reasons why there was pollution in the 1950s because our technology in the 1950s created pollution. The best thing you could do in order to eliminate pollution is to drive market processes that encourage efficiency and minimizing third-party payment costs because third-party payment costs, meaning third-party means... I'm selling to you and you get impacted, right? Mm-hmm. So a third person does if you're listening by audio. Externality. And can't see me sort of. pointing at people. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, the negative externality. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the market encourages the thing is, is what Henri's saying. And there's a, there's a point in which in the development of a, of a social, of the social organism itself where it goes from, I don't care, I'm poor and I'm not going to change what I'm doing because it's way more important to me that I get access to cleaning materials <laughs> so I can clean my house uh, or uh, other sorts of materials and goods uh, to the point where, I, okay, I can sacrifice some of those things in order to get an environmental benefit. Uh, and and we see that in developing countries all the time. Early on, they don't care about the environment. They're going to do whatever they can to get the initial gains from increased productivity. And then eventually what they do is they start valuing more on an individual level, those sorts of things. And it isn't necessarily, it doesn't require the state to get an environmental Kuznick curve. What it requires is, is a free people with defined property rights who can navigate the transaction costs between them. Right. Uh, and once again, and to, and to, and to just clarify transaction costs, because Under did a good job, but I felt like we kind of blew past it. Transaction costs is the thing that, that is the cost you pay in transacting, right? So in order for us to get a trade, there is a cost to that. And the lower that is, the more smoothly transactions move, the the, the faster and more efficient they are. Does that make sense? That's, so that's what, that's what, yeah, that's a good way to understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's, that's really, that's really good stuff. Very valid. I mean, if you're concerned about where your next meal is going to come from, if you're that poor, you're not worried about how clean the environment's going to be in 10 or 20 years. Right. In fact, in fact, a, a guy got uh, a lot of accolades recently talking to the woke environmentalist climate change people, uh, specifically making the point that the is big that problem the is guy? not the West. Yeah. The problem is not the West. The problem in climate change is China, India, the rising countries. Uh, and what you see, for example, I mean, one of the biggest uh, things that have changed in the last 40 years that really lifted 
the bottom of the global poor out of poverty was the end of what was called the permit Raj in India. India is one of the largest populated countries in the world. They had a very uh, restricted permission-based system in order to produce and to create mutually beneficial relationships, aka capitalism. Uh, and when they ended that regime and reformed their process to be more permissionless so that people could serve one another, solve each other's needs, the bottom you know, of the global you know, poor moved substantially to the right to the point where more people left poverty in the last 20 years than all of human history combined. And when you say to the right, you mean to wealth. Yeah, it's to the right not of the, the curve. Right. The curve yeah. shifted to the right. I mean, if you think, think of a distribution curve, it moved to the right. They didn't become Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did become more capitalistic, interestingly. It's, 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 much, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a culture you know, that often people said it must necessarily always be poor and communitarian. You know, throughout the 1950s and 60s, that's what they said. You know, Paul Ehrlich writes the population bomb, says these people will always be this way. They can, the way they can change. And then who knows? They changed the incentives by getting the government out of the way and free people found a way to make prosperity happen in India. And it, they now have one of the largest middle classes in the world. It's beautiful. Speaking of the middle class and the economy, we've got some uh, new inflation data out uh, yesterday as of uh, recording of this podcast. And uh, looks like we had a slight decrease in the year over year. CPI, right? Uh, about 6.4%. But, as, you know, it's down, I should say, yeah, the, from the, December, where it was 6.5%, but it's still up 6.4% right. year over year. This is this is like a good example of how things are framed, right? We, we just got an inflation print of 6%, right? But it's it's down from the previous inflation print. So it's 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 down from December, but it's still right, up six point four percent from last year. Right, the economists are calling this disinflation, which just means a, a decrease in the rate of inf of inflation, but it right. doesn't mean that we're having deflation. It doesn't mean prices are actually coming down. No, it just means they're, they're not going, going up, up as fast. Right. Yeah, but inflation would be terrible for the economy, Henri. Inflation would or deflation would deflation be, would yeah, be, be so bad, right? Oh yeah, that's why you know when we had deflation for a hundred years, you know we were just the most proper, prosperous nation on earth. No one knows about that. <laughs> yeah, we need to get out of sarcasm land and think about the people listening to this going, what the hell are they even talking about? Let's start from the basics here. What is the CPI? What does it measure? Uh, why don't you go ahead and just like define the CPI for us, Henri, and, and tell us well, what, what it is. I mean, it's the consumer price index. So it's it's measuring, uh, you know, the changes in a sort of, in theory, a broad-based price level. Right. In theory, what you're supposed to do is look at uh, a so-called basket of goods and see how the prices of that total basket change over time. And that is currently our, our measure, quote unquote, for inflation in, in the current. That, yeah, that is. So that is the, the, the popular statistic for measuring changes in prices. You know, so the, I, I think we need to distinguish, too, between monetary inflation and price inflation. You know, so the Austrians always look at uh, inflation as the increase in the money supply. So you're actually inflating something, a money supply. Um, whereas, you know, the, the change in prices is, can be caused by a number of factors. One of them is, is monetary, but also you have uh, a number of supply and demand factors. You could have regulatory factors that, that, uh, influence changes in prices. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the CPI is is a is a metric that is highly manipulated. It uh, can be uh, changed how they measure it, and and uh, typically what is reported as as inflation is the the core 
CPI, which leaves out a number of important categories, uh, food and energy, for example. Um, you know, the way that they calculate the, the housing component of it is, is completely uh, this, this made up idea of owner's equivalent rent. Um, so instead of looking at, you know, the actual uh, rent people are paying or the, uh, the actual prices of homes, they, they will do a survey and ask homeowners, if you were to rent your house, what would you pay? And they, then they, they come up with this idea of owner's equivalent rent, which drastically understates um, the nature of that component. Um, and, you know, by and large, the CPI is designed to understate the overall level of price inflation. Um, this is a, you know, it's, it's like letting your, your kids, you know, write their own report card, right? So we're letting the government tell us how good they're doing about managing the economy. And right now it's getting harder to, to lie to us. And so even 6%, that's, that's a pretty high inflation rate. We haven't seen that in 40 years. Um, but they have a lot of incentive to underreport that statistic. Uh, you know, for example, you know, uh, so, uh, social security payments. Um, if they can underreport what the actual rate of inflation is, then essentially they can cut social security without actually having to bring it, you know, to actually have to cut it and, and make themselves look bad to their constituents. And that's because social security payments are, uh, they ratchet up every year with inflation. Right. So if actual inflation is say double of the amount that they're increasing those payments, then the person receiving the social security payment would be getting effectively, you know, less by degree. Is that, is that about right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, well, that's interesting. So, so if the CPI is so flawed, like what, what should we be looking at instead as a measure of actual inflation? David, do you want to chime in on that? Oh man, I don't know. I, oh, I is there I, something? I do think, we know? I mean, well, I, I, you could look at shadow at, statistics. You could, yeah, you could look at. Uh, well, yeah, shadow stats is doing. They, they. Uh, it's a, it's an economist uh, whose name escapes me right now, um, but he's been tracking CPI based on prior uh, the way that they used to measure it. So they, they change how they measure it over time. They'll, they'll make substitutions uh, to what they're measuring. Uh, they'll do things like the owner's equivalent rent. So. He's been tracking it. It's always way higher uh, based on on those metrics. Um, uh, you could look at, uh, you know, the Austrians like to look at the the money supply. Uh, there's several metrics for looking at that, the M1, M2, M3s. Um, and what is that, M1, M2, M3? So it's just it's just looking at the quantity of money out there uh, and, and the differences, what you're counting as money. And I... I would have to look up the the specific differences of like what gets counted, but it's you're looking at the uh, actual number of dollars in, in the banks as well as uh, bonds. You know, certain other things can be considered part of the money supply, not just uh, you know actual you know paper dollars. Um, and that's an interesting one too, because a tremendous amount of people, when the stimulus happened during COVID. Uh, after that, could see the money supply go parabolic, just go yeah. straight up. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, that you know, very low interest rates all throughout COVID and other things obviously created this huge explosion of both federal spending, in addition to that, monetary policy, inflationary monetary policy that created this enormous increase in the money supply. 
Now, the question is, and you should answer this, Henry, because you're much smarter about this than I am, is why would an increase in the money supply create higher prices? Um, well, I mean, it's it's actually not as simple as, as just that. I mean, all else equal, you know, an increase, if you just look at, uh, at any good, uh, so uh, I guess to, to kind of take a step back, all else equal, if you increase the, the quantity of any good, it would tend to make the price of that good go down or the, the, like the, so when we're talking about money, the, the price is, is, you know, related to the purchasing power of the money. So the value of that money is going down. So if, um, and can I clarify that just to make sure I'm, I'm tracking you here and, and everyone listening, if you have more of a good, but the same amount of money chasing more goods, then that means every good is worth marginally fewer dollars. Is that correct? Well, I mean, if, you're just, about that? if we're just looking at, you know, supply and demand, um, you have, if demand stays constant and the supply of a thing goes up, then the, 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 what you have to pay for that tends to go down. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, in terms of money, that means that your purchasing power of your dollar is going down, but it's, it's far more complicated than, than just that. That's, that's kind of a, just, just saying, well, you know, printer go burr and, uh, money supply go up and therefore prices go, go up is, is one component of the whole equation because I mean, you have domestic demand for money, you have international demand for money. Um, you know, you have the interest rates as well, which is actually the price of money is, is the interest rate. And all of this is being centrally managed under our current paradigm. Um, and really, you know, the, the effects of, of what we've been going through, through our monetary system is to create a a situation of overconsumption and malinvestment. Um, and you know, the important thing to know about this is it's completely un- unsustainable. It will, it will come to a, a, a head eventually. Um, you know, at the moment we're still looking at a, a landscape where people think, oh, well, inflation hit 6%. Therefore the fed is going to fight it harder. Um, and so when, when that inflation print came out, um, you know, the price of gold actually went down. Um, and, and gold is, has historically been looked at as an inflation hit. And, and the reason the price went down is because investors think, well, in the future, the Fed is going to fight and win this battle against inflation. Um, so gold looks less attractive as an investment if right. you hold gold in the event that inflation goes up. Right. Right. So, um, but, I mean, the 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 game is the 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 government has no intention of 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 fighting inflation in any real sense you know they might want to they might want to talk about it they might want to you know raise interest rates a little bit and they they have raised interest rates a little bit but they are um they have every incentive to continue inflating the money supply it's it's by the design of the system and what are those incentives well they've also they've created a philosophy uh, a theory of the economy that justifies it. Right. right? So they, they, there's a lot of uh, belief, such as the joke I made earlier about deflation, that inflation is necessary because there are consequences of deflation that are terrible and often we should never experience that. 
Uh, additionally, there's um, there's the in, in incentive, specifically when it comes to finance, to consistently inflate. Because the first people to benefit from new money into the system is the people who are most highly leveraged, who take advantage of the short-term loans uh, by banks to financiers to uh, leverage, in case you're not knowing finance, leverage is taking out a loan in order to buy more of a thing so that you can trade that thing later for a higher price and then you take the difference and then you pay back your loan, right? So a leveraged loan is that. Sure. The... Uh, the people who benefit most from the banking system are the people who also who are participating in the finance system who are most sensitive to this. So like, for example, when six came out, gold went down, but so did all the stocks, right? And that's because right. those people right. are just so panicky. They're like, oh, sell now. And right now, oh, buy now, right? And that is because our time preference has shrunken Time preference. Well, well there's um, also not not okay. to cut you off, but there's a there's another reason why people sell stocks when uh, they think interest rates are going to go up. You know, it's because of the uh, the way that you you evaluate a company has to do with uh, oh shit, why am I blanking on the on the the actual term? Uh, you, you discount future earnings based on the interest rate. So with a, with a higher interest rate, uh, that means the value of the future earnings would go down. So there, there's a, there's a difference. I just wanted to point out the difference between yeah. that and, you know, gold, which doesn't have like, you know, future earnings and the, dividends. It, and, and the important kind of part of that is the reason why that happens is because the future dollars are worth more than the present dollars, right? Because there's more of them. In an inflationary environment? Right, exactly. So that's, that's why we have to make that calculation. That's why gold is a good stabilizing factor for those kind of valuations to connect people to a better signal in the marketplace. Now, I'll try to explain... Everything that Henri did a very detailed job explaining very simply for folks who might not be following. There's the the price. Okay, so the market works on what's called price mechanism signals. A signal is like an incentive, right? It just moves through the economy to say, here's how much of this thing there is. Uh, gold is relatively rare. Uh, diamonds are abundant, but they're controlled in this way. Water is abundant, but it's not convenient. You know, all these different things in, in are embodied in what's called a price signal the relative preferences of consumers, price signal, all these things are signals telling each other how to coordinate without any central planner, right? That's a good way to think about how the market spontaneously provides goods and services without any central planner planning everything or make, kind of making sure that good A go, goes from one place to the other to the, get to the right person in time to build their project or to eat dinner or whatever. So the price signal is manipulated by price controls. And we have a really important price control uh, instead of uh, signal distortion components in the economy, that is the government. The government using both fiscal policy on the on the on the congressional level, such as spending trillions of dollars during COVID, or uh, the price mechanism of the preference for the consumption of savings, which is the interest rate, which is controlled and set artificially by the Fed. Those things, as they move or do different things, manipulate the price signal, which creates malinvestment. Right. So if I think the price signal says this, but the reality of the real world I live in is this, uh, A or B, I'm going to do A because I don't, I can't know real reality because the price signal no longer signals to me what's actually happening. Does that make sense? So when we inflate the money supply, we manipulate the signal and people get confused about what's actually valued or not valued. So what they do is they put money into things that are actually not valued or speculate uh, because they have an abundance of uh, ability to do so, especially in a low interest rate environment, you have a huge in in incentive to speculate, right? Because risk is low because you don't have, you know, you don't have to pay interest on those on those loans, H hence over leveraging and stuff like that. 
Uh, so what happens is when a recession is the reconciliation of the false reality signal with the real reality, right? Where we say, oh my goodness, prices aren't actually, houses aren't actually worth this much. And so then the housing market collapses or, oh my goodness, pets.com is not, is not as great of an idea as I thought. The dot-com bubble crashes. And we have these anecdotes, right? Um, land in the West, <laughs> if you talk about the Great Depression. So the, uh, the manipulation of those price signals are the thing that monetary policy changes that confuses people and it creates that, that business cycle. Now, business cycles would still exist without central planning of money, but they would be smaller and more localized. These large national giant ones are right. because we have large national monetary policy, large national fiscal policy, large national central planning of industry uh, by regulatory bodies that consolidate under this thing under one thing. And then it does feel like we're doing everything together. But what happens when you only do one thing, you make a single mistake and everything collapses. Whether in a competitive society, what we see is people making different bets, countervailing bets. You bet on this and you bet on this and I bet on something else. And then we see which one wins in a competitive environment where we're signaling to third parties, people who aren't in our market, what we value and what's actually available for goods and resources and services. So I hope that kind of anchored in around and helped kind of connect people with the why this is such a huge deal. Additionally, that it won't feel like inflation uh, if what in the environment you're in is, of course, the CPI is not measuring it well, but also like things like the things that it's measuring aren't important to me. Like groceries are still very high. And even in the CPI's number, um, you know, you made a great point about rent, but we also have other numbers that are also very high when it comes to gas and cars and all kinds of things that are very important to the average person trying to deal with this, where the stock price doesn't matter to them or the price of certain commodities don't matter to them because they're using an industrial. People's actual emotional connection to this is the question when it comes to the average listener. And what they need to understand is that they are being manipulated, right? They're being used by a fiscal system and a monetary system that doesn't value creating their prosperity, that, that value short-term gains in the stock market and in these other in these other industries more so than the general prosperity and welfare, which pro, which price signals actually deliver. Yeah, and and the most insidious thing too about it all is is when the the crash does happen, when we go through these these uh, you know down parts of the business cycle, it always gets blamed on capitalism. So this is a pivot that happened in the American culture at the progressive era, right? Between 1880 and the 1910s, we made a distinction where we said, if there's a problem, the government should solve it, right? And with that, it started with industrial policy and it moved into finance and these other areas that became, if there's a problem, if there's a business cycle, then the government must step in and solve it. And that's why we created the Federal Reserve in the first place, who is the primary driver and controller of all the things that we're talking about when it comes to enabling fiscal policy in Congress or the interest rate of Federal Reserve. And we can we can talk about what the Federal Reserve is if, if we want to, but that's a, that's the important thing to kind of note out of that is like, that doesn't have to be that way. That was a choice, a cultural choice that we made as Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a final well, thought on I, that? I guess just, yeah, my final thought would, would be, you know, it, it's the insidious nature of this is, is whenever... Uh, the 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 inevitable crash comes. It's always blamed on the market. You know, it's always oh, uh, thank you, Maestro. While while the market is going up, and then when the crash happens, it's like oh well, there's there's capitalism again. You know, booms and busts, and and then the reaction to that is is well, we need more regulation. We need we need to go harder at the market, and it's caught making the the problem worse every single time. Um. So yeah, I, I just I wish people would 
would wake up to this. Uh, well, that because people assume it's that's the way it has to be, right? We we kind of take it as an assumption. To uh, the average person takes an assumption of the nature of the world, but that's actually an economic theory, right? That's a theory of how governments and markets should be. That isn't actually what it is. And in fact, I I think you know the most open person should be willing to engage with the fact what we're saying here, if they're still listening at this point, uh, with a. Uh, that dose of like, well, there could be another way of thinking about this because, you know, we're taught in schools, we're taught everywhere that markets make mistakes and governments fix them. In fact, it's quite the opposite, especially in monetary policy. It's absolutely the opposite. Yeah. I mean, well, and to just go on a little bit more, like if you care about the the working class, the poor, you know, like your, your number one priority should be end the Fed. Well, I think that's a really good pivot, Henri, because inflation is known in libertarian circles as an invisible tax, right? And I don't think a lot of people understand exactly what that means. Do you want to kind of describe that mechanism, how that works? Well, I guess that's just referring to the fact that, you know, your your money, your purchasing power is going down. So rather than just taking money from you, they are inflating the value of your money away. But they get to spend the new money first, right? So, so that's why it's, you know, sort of considered a tax. Well, and there's this two-sided mechanism, right? Where like right. consumer goods prices go up, meaning your purchasing power goes down. Simultaneously with inflation, asset prices tend to inflate, right? Stocks, um, your house, other things, right? Bonds. And so the folks that own assets tend to benefit from inflation, while the folks that don't own assets tend to be hurt by it. Is that kind of an accurate assessment? Well, it might it might seem like the the people who are own who own assets are benefiting while the market is going up, but then they also suffer through the crash. But uh, on net, you know, their purchasing power is going down too. You know, if, if you own a house, it's still the same house before and after and during, you know, all these business cycles. Yeah, sure. But, but I think what you're pointing out is that it isn't an even inflation, right? It's not that everyone's bank account just automatically rises. Mm -hmm. It isn't helicopter money, right? Where they're flying a helicopter over a city and, and throwing cash out. They have a specific injection areas that matter most to the people who are moving this money around when it comes to Congress. The beneficiaries of federal spending are the first to benefit. Uh, we're talking about, and, and a common thread here, the the people who manufacture the war machine, the military industrial complex, is the first benefiter of new deficit spending on the military. Uh, additionally to that, like when you look at all the congressional grants, all those things, those are all the people, first people. The people who are most connected to the Fed are the finance industry. So these people, you know, the military industrial complex, the finance industry, they get the money first. They can spend it before the value, the purchasing power of those dollars has gone down. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets out into the broader economy, when we get our hands on it, it's inflated, mm -hmm. right? Right, Is that right. what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's kind of think about it that they're at the beginning of the signal versus the end of the signal, right? They get the new signal price first, so they get to take advantage of the benefits Got of it. the new money. Can we clarify too, because earlier we mentioned inflationary environment and deflationary environment. Can we describe the difference between those and why maybe a deflationary environment isn't as bad as it's been purported to be? Well, a deflationary environment just means the purchasing power of your money is is going up. So and prices are going down. Yeah, prices are going down. Yeah. So, and the other one, the, one of the people who are really victimized this, and I think the deflationary versus inflationary environment really illustrates this. In a deflationary environment, there's a huge incentive to save, to not go into debt, to leverage your existing resources for future benefit. Because right? you expect that if I, if I hold onto this dollar today, instead of buying this can of uh, Zesty Electric Peak Yerba Mate. In a deflationary environment, I expect that can to be less expensive 
tomorrow. Right. So and I'm I'm inclined I'm incentivized to save that dollar and spend it tomorrow. Yeah. And Zesty still makes a profit in that environment. That's the important thing to understand because their inputs are also deflating, right? Yeah. In value uh, or in price. The the important thing to understand about that is that the time preference is a huge part of what the price mechanism signal of the interest rate is. So when people have short time preferences, it means I want to consume now. If they have long time preferences, right. I want to save invest and consume in the future. So an inflationary environment encourages a short time preference because I have a dollar today. I know that goods are going to be more expensive tomorrow. So I'm incentivized to spend that money on goods today as opposed to save it because that dollar will be worth less. Mm -hmm. And take out a credit card because interest right. rates are low. Because the interest rate on the credit card is the same, is is influenced by the interest rate set by the Fed, which sets the monetary environment, which sets everything else downstream from there. It's one in the signal to the other. And the far end of the signal, we don't know how far that goes. That's the really interesting thing. And I think some of the most interesting stuff being done right now in the Austrian space is investigating that. How far down deep does it change human behavior to have the constant incentive to consume right away, to not think about the future, to not invest, to not increase capital? It could be, it, it could be way deeper than we think it could be uh, in changing human behavior. Because so one thing that we fundamentally understand is that people respond to incentives. So you give them a consistent incentive throughout their entire life that spend amount now, take out a credit card. The best thing you can do is buy a house with a huge loan and pay it off. Mm -hmm. If that's the only way to get to the middle class, that's the way that people are going to take. And it's going to influence their behavior consistently over the lifetime until they think that's just, this is just how it is. Uh, one of the things about our vision is to demonstrate how responsible savings puts the ownership on the individual to take ownership of their life. And, and to plan their life with reliable signals that connect to the reality of the actual marketplace. And that's what a gold standard does. That's what other sorts of monetary policy reforms would do to incentivize people to better leverage reality rather than the false signals of the planned reality that we're in that's, that's, that can't possibly, you know, actually signal how things are in the marketplace. Got it. Yeah. And well, and also just to kind of like tie it back to our pre, one of our previous topics, you know, this the, the, this Keynesian approach is very fixated on consumption as being the driver of the economy. And, you know, this inflationary monetary system, you know, leads to overconsumption. Well, think about the environmental impacts. Like if you're an environmentalist, you know, consuming more than you need is the opposite of what you would want to see happen. So, you know, if you're if you're an environmentalist, you should be advocating for reducing the national debt, for ending the Fed. It, it, once again, you know, the, all the things that the uh, you know are the hot button talking points that people tend to vote for on the left, they they end up getting the exact opposite of what would be productive towards those goals. So they tend to blame capitalism, perhaps, for the shortcomings of institutions like the Fed. You know, look down on the free market when really if they were supportive of those things, they would actually achieve their goals for, you know, environmental stewardship much more quickly and effectively. While simultaneously blaming bankers and big finance for all the world's problems while empowering <laughs> them with a giant institution that yeah. monopolizes the money. Yeah. Uh, that's, and I, th I think it's well-meaning on their point. I, I, I agree. It's, this is not a shame session. This is a, if you were really taking this seriously, this is a potential way that you can get much better gains for the things that you value. Absolutely. And in just in the interest of concluding this episode on our usual, what can we do note, uh, what are the, what are the active tangible steps that people can take to potentially safeguard themselves from this inflation that we're experiencing or try to move themselves more towards 
a a state of stable savings or or some of these other things that we're talking about. And uh, well, I mean, short of giving people financial advice, we don't give people right? financial advice on this show, right? So uh, I'm not going to tell you what to buy, but I do think you know just the the counter of you know Keynesian fixation on consumption would be to be more productive. So find ways to to you know to produce. And if people wanted to perhaps read a little bit more, learn a little bit more about these topics, what are some good entry-level resources for people that might not be economic wizards like yourselves? Oh, I mean, probably, I mean, I, I don't, I, I know, you know, Carl Menger's Origins of Money is is a short read. I don't know if it's if it's necessarily like an introductory read. Um, probably easier is Murray Rothbard's yeah, What Murray, is Government? I was going to say, yeah, Murray Rothbard would probably be the place to, to his, send. His book, don't just jump into Murray anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his book, What Has Government Done to Our Money, is really great. Uh, Ron Paul's Revolution also has a chapter on inflation right. in the Fed, or, which is really great. Ron Paul's and the Fed. Yeah, Ron Paul's and the Fed is really great too. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, we will make sure to put links to those books in the show notes so people can find those uh, at libertyportal.com. Yeah. Uh, any other concluding thoughts before we wrap this one, guys? Did everybody see my really cool Ron Paul t-shirt? Can you get Classic. that at libertyportal.com too? No, but you can get this uh, through Adam Schwankel. Uh, I think Adam Schwankel art or just maybe adamschwankel.com. Uh, we'll our, our good friend. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I mean, everybody deserves to look that stylish. Who wouldn't want to wear Ron Paul on their chest? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks again, you guys, for another really great episode. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening and watching wherever you are. If you are in front of a computer watching on YouTube, please do like and subscribe. Find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And uh, if you're listening somewhere out there in the world, uh, we thank you. Please do follow and subscribe wherever you are. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Peace. Yep. Peace out. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. 